Hi, this is Anya Packard, the executive director of the National Women's Hockey League Players Association, and you are listening to Level Playing Field Podcast. Welcome to Level Playing Field Podcast, now a part of Outsports.com. My name is Randy Boos, and I'm your host on this weekly podcast where I interview out athletes and sports personalities. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at LPFpod. Give me a follow and keep up to date with the podcast. You can also reach out to me via email at levelplainfieldpod at gmail.com if you have any questions. Before I start this episode, I want to say a little thank you to Sid, Jim, Don, and SB Nation for inviting me into this new Outsports podcast feed. When I found Outsports almost 20 years ago, I never would have thought I would one day be a part of this great organization. On to this week's episode. I fell in love with the sport of hockey in the 80s when I saw my first game on my dad's pirated cable. I quickly became a Vancouver Canucks fan and have not looked back since. In 1995, I was working at an ice rink and our rink was chosen to host the first Pacific Rim tournament for women's hockey. National teams from the US, Canada, China, and Japan competed over a few days. Canada would eventually win the inaugural tournament. The game has grown since that first tournament I saw, and I look forward to seeing where the future of women's hockey really goes. This week, my guest is Anya Packer, a former player at Boston University, and she had time in the Canadian Women's Hockey League and National Women's Hockey League. While still playing, Anya became the executive director for the National Women's Hockey League Players Association. After time, though, she knew that her best decision would be to step down from skating and focus solely on her role as the executive director. In this one-hour interview, we talk about a lot of subjects from coming out, her playing career, her role as the executive director of the Players Association to be parts of our discussion. So much more her um, her marriage, where she thinks hockey's going to go, and we talk a lot about the NWHL. I hope you enjoy this conversation we have, and without further ado, here is my chat with Anya Packer. Thank you, Anya. Welcome for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on and chat. Cool. Um, let's get started. Let's talk about, obviously, you are a hockey player. Um, while retired, hockey has been your sport. Where did you first like fall in love with the sport? How did you start getting involved? Yeah, it all started from my brother. My brother's four years older, and I swear if he was into anything, I was into it even more. And he got on the ice and I looked at my mom and I just said, that's my sport. So started skating from there and every single step of the way, I was always challenging him. Um, they gave me my first Jersey and I said, well, my brother's eight. So I want to be two times better. Can I have 16? <laughs> <laughs> so it was born out of like a great sibling rivalry. Uh, and then my brother became one of my biggest supporters, taking slap shots in the garage, teaching me, watching NHL games and breaking things down. Uh, he really has been what I would call my motivator. So what year was it that you first started playing? Oh my gosh, I was four. So it was 95. Oh, interesting. That's actually the first yeah. time I saw women's hockey being played. Yes. Oh my um, gosh. 1995, IIHF had the Pacific Rim tournament. Yes. And um, it actually, I worked at an ice rink and my rink was the rink that they had the first tournament in, in San Jose. That's amazing. Yeah, I was obsessed. And we happened to live right down the street from a rink. And I was from Massachusetts, where thankfully women's hockey has been booming for such a long time. So it was like completely normal for me to play. I mean, obviously, I was playing on boys teams. But if you were good enough to play, they put you right on the ice. They didn't care. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because even back then, the girls just played on... Uh, oh, the yeah. boys team and travel teams and stuff like that. It wasn't until I think early two thousands where they started to have their own leagues. And, Absolutely. Um, we dead on. So when did you, what position did you play when you first started? I started playing honestly goal, I think was my first, like they made somebody rotate into the net and I volunteered first and it happened to be picture day. So I was like, mom, I'm in a picture as a goalie. I can't very well start playing another position. And she was like, <laughs> yes, you can. I, I was so logical. I was like, there's no way. So I started playing goal and then I was so fast. I just wanted to skate around. So I switched to defense and then my whole life I've kind of bopped between defense and um, winger and I settled down at D played college that way. And in the pros, I 
kind of did the same thing. I was more of a utility player wherever I was needed. I played, but I would call myself a natural born defenseman. How, how high did you go in travel hockey? Yep. I went all the way up to Bantams. Uh, then when it got to midgets in my hometown, it started being like really brutal fighting. And I played a mm-hmm. couple of games in midgets and it just wasn't worth it. And the guys on my team were tired of constantly getting in battles for me. So um, <laughs> I decided to part ways, but I played all the way up until Bantams and then still did skills with all the guys uh, when I was that age. So it was part of a skills development group when I was playing um, high school hockey. And at that time I was playing AAA girls too, uh, but still worked out with all my guy friends that were on that college route uh, and trained with them too. And what, Bantams is 13 to 15? Yep. I was probably a freshman in high school when I stopped playing boys hockey in entirety. Oh, really? And then, so your high school had a girls team? Yeah. So when I was in eighth grade, they signed waivers, whichever. I'm like, that sounds way more official than it is. But there weren't enough players to field the women's team or the girls team. So they brought us up. There was three of us, four of us, actually, that played high school hockey. So two of us started every game from eighth grade to senior year. It was like the most ridiculous thing, but um, it was so much fun. And I, at the same time, was playing tournament teams with AAA teams and teams where I could get more college uh, scouting because, you know, public hockey just, or, or even local hockey, high school hockey doesn't get you a division one look anymore. And even, it, I mean, 15 years ago, didn't either. Yeah. Was it, what was it like to be a hockey player for your, the high school? Was it like, I know in, in California or, you know, in Texas, whatever football's the big sport, but back in the Northeast where hockey is a a big sport, popular sport, I imagine you get a little bit of clout with. (laughs) I felt kind of cool. Like, I don't know if it was personal clout that I gave myself and had this like (laughs) really excited mentality, but you know, it was kind of a mixture in, in high school, people are going to bully you for anything. So being a good athlete just kind of puts a title on your head, but um, outside of like the normal, what I would call like normal bullying, not that bullying should be normalized, but the standard, you're a girl playing sports bullying. Um, we had pep rallies. The hockey team was like this cool, cool thing, mostly the boys team, but we were pretty good. Our girls team. So we got like, we won a championship one year. Um, and, and like the city council brought us in and we had a lot of fun in high school. I really enjoyed playing for my my city and and having that network of people around me that I grew up playing hockey with like the boys hockey team would stay and watch our games and the the rink is owned by the city so we would have great ice times so I I had a great experience playing high school hockey you know you've talked about in articles and in other interviews you talk about mental health being a big issue for you in high school um and well all through growing up did hockey ever help you know, get through some dark times or like, was it a distraction at all? No, it was always a really inviting family. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, I was hospitalized in high school for mental health. And it was when I really turned the corner and I found my support system. And a lot of that came from my hockey team. It was constant cards and calls and, and sending notes and messages with my mom and and I remember this car that they got me and it was like, we heard your who's a mutzit was on the fritz. It was like this big, funny card and I could laugh again. And it made me feel like when I was going back to school, I wasn't going to be isolated. I wasn't going to be alone. I had a, a lunch block actually that didn't coincide with any of my teammates. Um, it was my freshman year and I showed up to my first day of school back and all of my teammates cut their classes and sat with me at a lunch table. And it created this armor and it created a place where I could just be. And I have never felt that experience any more prevalently than I have in the sport of women's hockey. Do you think there's an advantage to being a woman and maybe woman in sports suffering through mental health because the women are able to bond at a different level? Yes. I think that the, the normalcies that you see in women's sports around mental health, LGBTQ, being open and feeling accepted is, is unmatched in men's sports because women are more compassionate. They're more understanding. And quite frankly, it's less of an embarrassment, you know, 
like to say to somebody, hey, I have feelings about a woman versus a man, your female teammates are going to be like, okay, let me hear you on that. Let me work with you on that. What do you need from me? How can I be a support system to you? As opposed to being concerned about ridicule or, and, and that certainly happens, you know, in college, they were like, the gay players are going to the gay bar and the straight players are going to the straight bar. And it kind of got this like weirdness where I'm like, why are we like, you know, two sides to this? We're just teammates. And I don't want to go to the air quotes gay bar tonight. I want to hang out with my friends. Um, and so we had to break down some barriers there too. But I think women's sports are just so much more open because women are more open and they're more understanding and they're more willing to just be like, I don't understand, but I, I support you. Like you're good with that. So, and then for, for being an, an out athlete, when did you start to feel comfortable with identifying yourself that way and, and just coming out to family? It was hard. It was my freshman year of college. And I remember like in that exact dichotomy, you know, we were all out, the team was out and the, again, I'm going to like air quotes it, like gay players were like, we're going to go to a gay bar. It's so much fun, Anya. You don't have to worry. Like, I know you're not into it, but let's just go. And I didn't define myself before that, but I was like, okay, I'll just, just go. Like, I'll try, I'll go. I knew that I felt that way, but you know, it was kind of this like, don't worry, we're just going to go dance. And I felt really at home just being unlabeled and, and, not feeling like I had to pick a side or I was letting anyone down or I was, you know, drawing this line in the sand. And, and then my, you know, teammates kind of started poking around. They were like, well, wait a second. And, um, that was about when I started feeling like I could have that narrative with my teammates. And when I started feeling that way, I felt like I could turn and have that conversation with my family. So I think it was, it was just being embraced by a culture of people that truly just cared about me as a person that made me feel like I could talk to my family. It's interesting because coming out is such a huge fear. And and for a lot of people, there's no issue. Family is accepted and accepting of it. And obviously your story is, has a mix of both, but it's funny how in women's sports, that's where you took comfort, comfort originally. Yeah. It's a complete opposite. A lot of people will live a closeted life around their teammates especially in the male sports. I mean, and even certain sports, you know, some sports at BU were super inclusive and super open when I was there. Now they, now BU is a great community of LGBTQ allies and supporters. And, and BU, but, just so people know, it's Brown Boston University. University. Oh, Boston. Boston University. Yep. I thought you went to Brown. Nope. Boston University. Oh, why? Where I'm a terrier for life. Sorry. Total insult. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. That, that silly little Ivy league school. Um, uh, uh, yeah, no, but, but even like team to team, like there were some at the time women's lacrosse players that felt like they couldn't be themselves because the team was heavily predicated with straight athletes and they had to look and feel a certain type of way. Um, so women's hockey really was a unique space for me at BU. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of branched into this little community and now the university is better than it's ever been before. They have an out week and they, they do tremendous stuff for, for inclusion and acceptance. Yeah, it's crazy how colleges have really changed and come around just in like the last 10 years. Right, right. Which is, you live there. It's your whole being. It's your whole entire network. So if there's even the, the smallest shred of homophobia and, you know, a lack of inclusion and not feeling completely comforted, how, how is that athlete going to feel? How's that, that student going to feel? Um, so I think it's tremendous that they've started at the collegiate level and then um, now, hopefully, it, it absorbs up to the pro level and, and even further um, into just you know, society as, as a whole. So, I'm, and I'm sort of, sort of bouncing around here, but you graduate high school, you go to BU. How did you choose BU? It was my dream school. I, I've always wanted to go to BU. I used to go to um, the men's team, like the men's games, and they didn't have a women's team for the longest time. So when I was there, it was the sixth year of having a women's program. Um, it was fairly new, uh, but I always wanted to be a terrier. So when I was applying to schools or when I was getting scouted and looking at, at schools, I was constantly emailing, oh my gosh, I think Brian DeRocher was like fed up with me and just came to watch <laughs> me play because he was sick of me. But I wanted to go there so badly and I was so passionate about it. And I was more of a bubble player. Like I could have played division one or I could have played division three. And it was just constant communication with the coaching staff trying to figure out 
how do I get there? What do I do? Do I have to have, do I have to have, be the GPA booster? Do I have to be the best teammate? Do I have to be the best, you know, practice player? What do I have to do to get there? And so, uh, <laughs> I was obsessed. And, and then when I got that call from Brian DeRocher saying that I made the team and to pick my number, I was, um, sharpening skates. I, I used to work at a hockey shop and mm-hmm. I started crying. I called my mom, all the guys that worked there, like came over. It was, they like shut the store down. We had a party. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, it was ridiculous. It was literally out of a movie. What was that first year like for you in college? It was very confusing. College is a lot of space, but I was in Boston and I'm from Waltham. So I lived 15 minutes from my actual home And I felt like I was living a double life. I felt like in the city of Boston, I was so comfortable. I was so myself. I was, you know, I was able to like breathe my own independence. And then I would come home to a city that was fairly small minded. Um, No offense. I love Waltham. But like my friend group was fairly small minded. And my, you know, family was, I would say, halfway there to accepting me. And I felt like for my whole freshman year, I kind of had to justify myself or, you know, pick staying in the city where I could just be versus going home, going to church, all these different things, which now I I embrace my home and I embrace the people around me because they've learned to embrace me too. Um, so the first year was tough. It was, how do you, how do you normalize that? How do you say, okay, here I can wear and talk and be like this, but when I go home, completely different. You know, it was very confusing. Would that keep you away from home then a little bit more because you weren't able to be yourself? Yes. And it was hard because I'm now, anyone who knows my mom and I, we're obsessed with each other. Like she was my best friend. And at the time she probably needed my support and I needed her support, but neither one of us could communicate in a way that was healthy. And we completely lost touch. So for a long time, I felt like I didn't have that person in my life anymore. And we would just be around each other and go through the motions, but not actually communicate, which anyone that goes through that with their parents know how hard it can be to just be like, why aren't you being you anymore? And I'm sure she was in her mind thinking the same thing about me. And we were both so frustrated that we weren't getting there, weren't getting to resolution. And it, and it took a hard conversation where you know, we needed each other. And I was just like, we're not even like friends anymore, let alone like a parent sibling. I mean, a parent offspring relationship. Like we don't even know each other. So don't, I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk right now. You're not the person that I want to call. And we had a really hard time. And that brought us to the point of being like, okay, my mom wrote me this really long letter and I still have it. Like we needed to come to common ground. And I think it took a long time for us to do that. And it was really hard. And that was after you came out to him, right? Your parents? Yeah. 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 I wanted to talk about that because I think you wrote an article for Outsports or I read it on one of the other places you've written. And you talk about the differences between your father and your mother. Um, Night and day. Couldn't have been any more different. And in the, actually, that's one of the questions I wanted to clarify before we started. But was this your biological father or was this your stepfather? My stepfather. So my stepfather and my mother got married when I was very young, like two. So in my mind, I had always had two dads and Mm -hmm. he was, it was even harder for me to come out to my stepdad because I never used that word. You know, he was always just my dad. So when I came out to him and he was like, girl, me too. I was like, excuse, hold on. Like no one expects that. Right. They're like, wait a second. Aren't you supposed to like, completely disowned me like isn't this supposed to be a really harsh conversation and he was so he was like are you healthy are you happy are you breathing are you like what's wrong I was crying he was like I was like I'm gay and he was like no but what's wrong because nothing's wrong with that and I remember being like like feeling the complete weight off my shoulders like okay this is going to be easy and then so you have this experience with your dad and because you, you talk to him first, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to your mom. Are you expecting the same type of reaction? Or did you go in feeling that it might be a little different? You know, my mom is interesting. She is such a strong person that at times I, I oh my gosh, I always have feared my mom. Like, my, like if I want something, I ask my dad. 
And if I'm a, like, if I, if he doesn't know what to say, cause we're both afraid that she's going to get angry, he'll be like, <laughs> ask your mom. Like, so she was always just a little bit tougher my whole life. So I was more hesitant because I also felt like it would be harder for her to rationalize because she was not gay. Like she, not that my dad was gay, but like, I can see him being like, I see the appeal. I like women too. Like that's mm-hmm. basically how he, he posed it. He was like, me too. Yeah, that was so like, funny. Yeah, he was like, I'm a lesbian too, I think. I was like, dude, come on. <laughs> that's, the fir- that's the first thing he said. I was and like, typical dad joke humor. Tip- oh my gosh, like the most. And my mom is just a little bit more, like I live to make my mom proud. And I always try to be a spitting image of her. And so for me, I felt like that was going to be a hard conversation before we even started. And when I finally, and it was like, weeks after I told my dad, it was like our little secret. And I finally said something to my mom. I sat her down at the table and I was like, I just need to talk to you. And I felt like in that moment, I lost my best friend and it was really hard. You know, like I've always wanted a wife, children, a family. And and for her, in her mind, she just thought, well, they'll never be accepted. And that was like, she had to get over that like she had to move on from that because that's not true and it's generationally different oh totally um so so it was hurt it was hard it was hurtful it was sad it was frustrating it was it was it was awful and we're very religious my dad never goes to church because we're Armenian apostolic so he doesn't understand it anyway (laughs) and he's like he's always like you girls go like it's no biggie and I felt like even that was gone like I felt like 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 not part of that routine that we had anymore. And it was just a very different experience. As someone who's struggled with mental health in the past, and well, with mental health, you always have some sort of struggle, but did it take you to a darker place because of the friendship that you lost with your mom temporarily? Absolutely. And it was, I, I had to lean on and use all of my resources that thankfully I had. You know, people don't always go through that training, that mental training to be able to process really challenging situations. So had I not been armed with a bunch of tools to take care of myself, I don't know what would have happened. I, I mean, I, I felt completely alone and completely lost. And I surrounded myself with teammates, with friends, with my dad, um, you know, with people that I felt like I could be around. I mean, Boston University has a tremendous free mental health clinic. And I would constantly go talk to people and I would just burn my brain trying to figure this out. And then it got to the point where I had to accept that this was not my problem and that I had to just wait. And that's the worst part. Like, Oh yeah. Dealing with it and thinking that it's almost your fault is almost easier than just waiting for somebody to, to be like, Wait, it's my fault. And how how long was that wait? How long did it take you to get that letter? Oh gosh, I think it was like eight months. Oh wow. Yeah. So you're you're time. passing like holidays and stuff. Oh yeah, we were like around each other, like because she would still come to my games. Like she still loved me and supported me, but not gay me. So if we were talking about like that sounds so silly, but it's true. Like if we were if we were somewhere and I started talking about like going out or like being around people. I don't know. She instantly was like, wall, stone face, not involved. Don't want to talk about it. Walk away. Do you and think I'm it like, was, do you think it was like you, you said gay you, um, do you think it was gay you or do you think it was her dreams for you? Yes. That, that she was really. That. Cause I feel like coming out is not a bad thing, but when I try to put myself in her shoes, there has to be some mourning for the person that she air quotes thought I was going to be, Mm -hmm. you know, like she has to, she has to figure that out. And I had to accept that about her. Like I had to accept that she or anybody, it's not even just a direct knock at my mom, but just that anybody that's struggling is not struggling because they don't love you. It's they're struggling because they need to either move on from who they, what they thought, or accept that you're the exact same person and whatever preconceived notions they have are silly. And that's a lot for somebody to process when it's something like 
being gay or being trans. I mean, I don't even know what that would be like. I can't even imagine how challenging that must be for people to talk about that out outing. Um, oh yeah. Because people just don't understand. I mean, I don't even understand, but I try to always constantly appreciate somebody else's perspective. And I think it took a long time for her to realize that this wasn't me making a big scene or changing who I was or uprooting my life, moving to Guam and never calling again and living in a like compound. Like that's not who I was being. Mm-hmm. I was just telling her that instead of preferring men, I preferred women. Like if I were to say, mom, I prefer blondes instead of brunettes. And she was like, oh, you're not a brunette <laughs> lover anymore. Goodbye. Like it took her a long time. And she was like, I'm so embarrassed. Like who you spend your nights with is none of my business. Like, I love you. If you're happy and you're healthy, I'm good. And we'll get to Madison and how she came into your life in Mm. a few minutes. But having a mother who, you know, the first eight months or so was not necessarily accepting, but then I'm sure with Madison and, and it's like another child almost. Yes. Yes. Now they're like the closest, which makes me so happy. I mean, I swear when my, the second my mom came back, she was back a hundred percent. There was no awkwardness. There was no hesitation. She was back to being like super defensive, not liking my girlfriends because they weren't good to me, not because they were girls. Like she would be like, ugh, she's definitely not it. Like, (laughs) so like, she's the best. Like the second she came back to being who I knew she always was. And the second I became who she knew I always was back in her mind, we were like, nothing had ever changed. That's cool. So did this, so you play the first few years at, at Boston University. Yep. Um, and then your third year in college is when you, it's a CWHL, right? That you first play. Yep. yep. Started playing in the Canadian women's hockey league. I was in a lab science and I had to kind of choose the, the option was take a different major, which to me was like, I was there for school. Mostly I, I was good at hockey, but I wasn't going to the Olympics and, you know, it wasn't going to pay my bills at that time. There was no professional paid women's league. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to still be a part of the team, like hang out with everybody, live with everybody, but I'm going to, I'm going to step out. And I did. And I got the opportunity to play, um, on the, uh, Boston blades and the CWHL. And honestly, at that time it was mostly, it was like nine U S Olympians. Like it was great hockey. So I didn't lose that relationship that I had with BU women's hockey, but I also gained a new whole idea about what hockey looks like. And it was pretty cool. I'm, I'm going to have to say that it was one of my favorite um, decisions I've ever made. Really? It must've been hard though, to balance a sport, a school, and then just your personal life. Right. And it was, it was a little bit more easily managed because BU never took away any of my resources. So I was still able to utilize a lot of the student athlete resources at Boston University. They were extremely accepting um, and they were extremely helpful to me. So I felt like I had a lot of tools in my belt in that way, too. Oh, OK. But still, I mean, just the time, practice, yeah. hockey practice, games, schooling. I mean, it's and it's not like you're and no offense to people with liberal arts degrees because I don't I don't have a degree at all anyways. But it's not like you just went for a gen ed degree. No, I had a, a major lab science degree where I had to, I took like six labs my senior year. So three and three. I mean, it was a lot of work, but I was extremely lucky. I, I did, I love school and I love science. So for me, it was, it was all good things. So when you graduate from university, well, obviously, like you said, women's hockey, it's not at the point where back then or now where you can do that full time. Right. So you're having to then once you leave university, you're still having to balance a full-time job versus playing. Yeah. And tell you right now, no employer cares. I mean, sure. They might support you and say that that's great, but if you have to miss a week of work cause you're traveling to Toronto, they don't care. They're like, well, that's, that's not good. You're not doing what you should be. So Um, for me, it was really hard. It was really hard to make these choices. And then the national women's hockey league started in the U S and that was all like local to each other. It was instead of going from Boston to Toronto, Calgary, um, Montreal, it was 
Boston to Connecticut, New Jersey, Buffalo. It was so much closer. So that was why I made the switch um, and started playing in the NWHL in its inception. There was a lot of other exciting things and a lot of other things going on. But honestly, at the time, women's hockey was just about what was most convenient. And it was mm-hmm. not convenient for me to constantly be traveling to Canada. Um, so I, I, you know, packed up my stuff. I moved to Connecticut. I got an offer from the, the whale and I said, well, I'm going to live here now. And I tried to get a job and that's kind of what started me on this path. And so re- really it was just ease of, of schedule scheduling yeah. made the jump because, for you. Right. Because on one side there was the CWHL, which was a, you know, longer standing league. It was, um, something I knew, something I was familiar with and, you know, that, that was a thing and they weren't paying. And then in the NWHL, they started to pay and it was the first league that's ever paid women's hockey players. And it was local and it was a lot less travel. And at the time the CWHL was busing everywhere. So every weekend we were getting on a nine, 10 hour bus to Toronto, Markham or Brampton at the time it was Toronto and Brampton. So we had two teams in a nine hour bus trip. One team was in a six and a half hour bus trip. And then one team was a flight away that you'd play three games and miss a Friday and a Monday. I was like, I can't do that oh, anymore. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of travel. And at that point, and they still weren't paying? No, and at that point, they weren't paying. So I, I chose to go where the money was and, and where I thought it was more convenient to my schedule. And I was not an out-of-nation player, so I didn't need a visa. I didn't need all these things. I just could go and play and have it be a second job. And it was... It was it was a it was a lot of fun. Like, I have nothing bad to say about my first year in the NWHL. I lived with a house full of teammates, <laughs> and it was it was like it was honestly like a joke. It felt like college again. It was so much fun. And then so at that point, because I think still now you guys just have games on the weekends, right? Yep, it's still nights and weekends. Um, it's definitely changed in structure, but at the time, um, it was uh, one game a weekend. And it was practice on Tuesday, Thursday. So some teams still have Tuesday, Thursday practices, but every team now has like lifts and there's more ice time um, in the week. And then there's two game weekends now. So it's, it's a little bit of a different. It's really like a a junior schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Actually very similar to like, if you think about like someone in the O or the coast or the Gulf, except instead of our practices being at noon, like theirs are, um, our practices are at like eight. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it definitely seems like a smart business plan for a small league to reduce travel, reduce expenses, and keep it. Yeah, you don't get a national TV coverage, but you you definitely have a focus of a certain area, like a region, like the Northeast. Yeah, and we we stream on. We signed a big deal with Twitch this year, actually, a three year partnership, and they have a totally different audience demographic and reach than we've ever utilized before, and. Game over game, our numbers have been going up. The utilization has gone up. We have more subscribers. Like it's just been a, a really interesting, di- like you know, introduction to the e-gamer kind of streamer community that has been, you know, it's blown all of our barn doors off on what we thought it was going to perform at. So we're just so excited to be um, there. And as Twitch onboards new pro level sports and different sports streamings uh they increase their functionality and and we get to benefit from almost all of it just by being you know one of the first leagues to get a full deal with them that's cool yeah and i want to talk about that in a few minutes i want to talk about the whole like last six months of hockey but like i told you before i'm a part of outsports podcast network so i need to take a quick commercial yeah and we'll be right back we're back and before we get to hockey in the last six months, because there's been a lot of changes, a lot of um, women's hockey in the news, I want to talk about your relationship. Um, <laughs> because I think it's important to have talk about positivity with LGBT relationships and also relationships in sports, where for a while you guys were playing on different teams, right? Yes, yes, years. Um, and so how how would that work out with – and you're, you're – wife now is Madison Packer. Yep. Um, and she's on the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Riveters. Yeah. So I want to talk about how being married to a, a player on another team had to make home life different <laughs> in some ways. Yes. And, and you know what? It was funny because 
I have such a levity about the game because I play because I love it. Maddie's much more, uh, as people would, oh my gosh, if I'm going to say this and someone's going to be like shocked by it, I would be baffled. She's much more serious. She's much more intense. She's much more frightening. Like she's all these things about sports because she's so passionate. She's so driven and she's so good. So for me, I was always laughing. Like we would get stuck on the ice. Like she's the first line. I was always on the third. Like if we played against each other, like physically on the ice, it was because my line got stuck out there. So she would either like dangle me or score or something. And we'd get home and I'm like, thanks, babe. I'm not in the lineup next week because you made me look stupid. Like way to go. She's like, I'm not going to take it easy on you. So it was always like this big joke, like, cause I feel like there was a lot of capability for us to get really tense with one another. And in reality, we were both doing the thing we loved the most against one another, which can add a wrinkle of weirdness, but we're both pioneers. We're both changing the world. And I see things that way. Um, I live with these like rosy colored, like women are going to take over the entire globe glasses on. And Maddie's like a total realist, like aggressive athlete, crazy person. So although the competition is high, like we would be razzing each other before the game, we're both each other's biggest cheerleaders. And it never turned into a situation where I felt like, okay, we're not in this sport together. Like we're not, we're, we're competing right now. I always felt like she always had my best interests at heart. And I always had hers at heart, even though she was trying to score. And I was like, please, dear God, I'm tired. Don't do that to me. And she would never give me an inch of slack. You know, like I mentioned, I've read articles about you and it's funny because it seems like maybe on the ice, she had the advantage, but off the ice, you sort of seem to play up to, cause you seem the more outgoing person and she's more quiet and reserved. At least what I've gathered from yes, articles. That's completely correct. And so like your engagement story, it seems like you really got a chance to embarrass her. And obviously it's probably not the intention. <laughs> Might've been. But it definitely, you got her back a little bit. Yes, and I love this. And and Maddie is always the first one to say, like, when I have a big interview, I wish my wife was there because she absolutely helps cut my awkwardness. Um, Pac is funny, and she's such a sweet person, but no one would think that about her because she's such a brute, and she's such a big player, and she's aggressive. And, you know, players on my team would be like, what's wrong with your fiancé? <laughs> I'm like, she's actually very nice, like you're getting really emotional, but she's very sweet. Like she's going to be gutted about this play for the rest of the night. Like, so it's funny when you know, I know her so much, obviously better than so many other people, but she really is like meek in her shell. And when I can like get her out in, in front of people and, or like scare her or like joke around or like post these stuff, I, I feel like it brings her humanity back. <laughs> Sometimes she can be a little scary. <laughs> Amazing. So when you, you played for, was it seven years? Yes, I played um, for seven years. <gasps> That's a long time. <laughs> yes. And then you three were... in the NWHL. Yeah. And then it was two years ago now, or no, one year ago, you retired? Yes. At and the that's... beginning of last season, I retired. Was it a tough decision for you to do? It really was. And it was hard because I had to take a pretty good look in the mirror on where I affected change. Um, obviously playing the sport I love is, is hugely important to me. But at the time I was given the opportunity to be, um, the head of the PA for the better part of the third season, um, or excuse me, second season. And then the third season I did both. I played and I was the head of the PA and I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, am I spreading myself too thin? what is making the most impact for women's hockey and, and what do I need to move forward to do? And I decided that I was so much more empowering and impactful in the boardroom. Like when it was part of negotiations or when it was getting lawyers or when it was trying to sell deals to get people to believe in the NWHL and to support the PA, like that was where to me, I was really crushing it. And then I had my wife who was on the all-star team, captain of her club, scoring all these goals. Like she was making a real impact on the ice. So I had to look in the mirror and say, you know what? My best foot forward for the growth and development of this sport is to grow it, is to, is to sit in the back, not take any credit and just make it happen. And it was hard because I 
freaking miss practice and I miss getting boxes full of like jerseys and goodies and all that stuff. But what I have now is so much, so much more. I, I have, you know, the confidence to know that we have lawyers and the confidence to know that we are making actionable change. And every time we stream on Twitch and someone subscribes to the the channel, that's players getting paid and that's work that my team did. So it's different and it was definitely hard, but it is very rewarding. So then what's your, your first season that you're not playing last year? You still have the full-time job. Oh yeah. And so the players association position is the part-time, but you're obviously still heavily involved in the league. Yeah. Oh yeah. The players association is a full volunteer role. So, and I would call it a second full-time job. I, I dedicate honestly to the point where sometimes Madison's like, I'm going to break your phone because this is our time. Like, turn it off. And I have to be totally appreciative of, of the fact that I give my whole day to my work job in sales. And then I spend my whole afternoon, my whole evening on the PA, which is a completely different set of problems and, and a completely different set of stresses and a completely different set of working guidelines. So never ends for me, honestly. I feel like I'm always working, but um, I believe in the league and I believe in the players and their ability to affect actionable change within the infrastructure that we've built. So um, I never, I'm never going to let them down in that way. Your first year, obviously, it came... How how was that first year? I guess I should ask first before I go to my next question. Yep. My first, well, so I started in January of the second season of the league, which was, you know, the season that changed everyone's perspective on the league forever was the, the season that they decided to cut salaries to continue to have the league. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't told any of this. I wasn't a part of the conversations. Basically, the bad news came out. Our PA director left and we were just a players association with no leadership and the people on the PA were like uh Anya you got to do it and I was thrown into this lion's den with no lawyers with a contract I didn't have any negotiation negotiating power on and I had to try to salvage this league and it was really hard it was horrible it was horrible and the reason it was so horrible is because we didn't know anything. We didn't have any lawyers and we didn't have any power. I was basically just a figurehead of nothingness. So I had to start there and backtrack my way into all the things I felt the PA deserved and believed in and should have in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just, you know, you're starting a new league and you don't think about these things. You think everything's going to go perfectly. And it was a it was a long battle back. And then I think in year three, I was still trying to earn people's respect. And at the time, I was still a player. So it was really hard um, because I think that everyone believed I was biased and everyone had their own set of challenges, obviously, supporting the league to begin with. And then I think in season four, I really hit my stride. And in the offseason, we've won so many things and the league has gotten so much more, in my opinion, like mature the players association is stronger than it's ever been. And we now get a 50, 50 revenue share of all deals that come in on a league level. That's uh, like better than industry standard. So now I feel like after three years of pretty solid work, I, I feel like I've gotten some pretty major changes or my team, I won't even see myself. Like we have lawyers and they, they are really the ones that are pitbulling in the, in the boardroom. Um, but I'm a connector of the smart people together to get the right outcomes. And so over time, though, you've seen, you know, you had your the first salaries for the first season. You get bumped down the second season. The first real gain was when you took over as full-time. Like, you stopped playing and you started focusing on full-time. Totally. Really. Totally. Last season, in my opinion, is when the PA turned a corner to being stronger, better, better informed, wiser, more negotiating power, more clout, more respect, more... Anything that I could say that we've done, we did last season and into this season. And whether people see that or not, it's hard to articulate what that level of respect and what that level of visibility and equality is. But I know it because I work on it every day. It's never been as as good as it's been until right now. You know, unfortunately, women's sports, there's a pay scale gap. 
you know, popularity isn't as high as the men's professional sports society, whatever it is. I'm sure there's lots of, lots of reasons why hockey, unfortunately is the fifth most popular sport in the U S probably even behind soccer. Right. And even on the men's level, like in respect to the economies of scale of the sport, what do we do if our men's players are making a percentage point of soccer players, basketball players, baseball players. So it's, it's just a, it's just not yet the most popular sport. And how do we increase the inclusion and how do we increase the viewership? Like there's, there's so many problems that live within hockey to then delineate it one more time to women's hockey. It gets really challenging. Well, yeah. Cause I was looking at salaries, um, just a quick Google search before we talked and Top basketball players get like 30 million a year. Top hockey players get like 13. And then you look at soccer. The soccer is the most important popular sport in the world. Our U.S. women's team is the best in the world. And you see the pay gap between the women and the men. And that's like a whole nother discussion, a whole nother podcast episode. It's I, I almost want to say it's unfair for people to expect you to have this huge increase in salaries when just looking at numbers from across the leagues, across the genders, it's just not in your favor. Right. Or if you look at it and you do those exact measurements and metrics, we're pacing exactly the same way that the men's are. And if you take the WNBA versus the uh, NWHL, you know, you're getting average salaries in the the WNBA between, you know, 60 to 80, you know, some players are at 110, some players are at 40. You know, we're pacing that in terms of economies of scale, but that's not enough. And and people don't, that's not an acceptable answer. So it's always about education and changing that narrative, because how do you win when your sport just isn't as popular? And then society tells you women's sports aren't as popular. Yeah. And you have women's hockey has had an interesting six to seven months or well, probably eight to nine months. Now, by the time we look at the calendar, you look at a women's world championship with a U.S. team that wins controversially. I mean, the results probably should have been different. And then the CWHL, one of the two North American women's hockey leagues abruptly calls it quits after the championship weekend for the NWHL. The Devils drop, is it part ownership or support for the Metropolitan support team? for the Riveters. Yep. And then and the then ownership the group. And the the ownership. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for all of this to happen, and I don't want this to come across as like I'm a huge cheerleader for you. Um, I'm just looking at facts, though. For you then to come out and say, you know, well, we've increased our salaries. We have, we have market share come out to help the players and you're, you know, I mean, you're, you guys play a 23 game season. Is that what it is? Four. 24. Yep. Um, so for all of these increases to happen, I mean, it has to you to feel good about some results, but then no offense to the women behind the professional women's hockey player association who they want the best for the sport as well. You guys all want to make more money. You guys all want to be accepted more. But it has to be tough to see them come out and, and have the for the game um, hashtag and the whole um, boycott of, of professional sports in North America. It has to be tough for you to see that as a player, as a fan. Yeah. I mean, you're dead on. It, it, was, it was hard. And when all, when all signs turned to say that women's hockey was not performing – we were able to step up and say it was, and it's, and we're trying and we're doing different things and we're structured differently than the CWHL was structured. We're structured differently than the PWHPA is structured. Currently we're structured as a for-profit business and we are selling parts of our league that are benefiting our players. Like we aren't accepting trade deals any longer. You know, if a company wants to work with the NWHL, it's not, here's some product hopefully you can plug us. And that's what we think about women's hockey. It's Mm -hmm. no, we are worth something. This is the value of what you want. And we're fighting for that value. Now, even more, our commissioner brings me on calls because I represent 50% of the deal, you know, like she's saying, Hey, 
we're having a call with this company. It's at this stage. This is the conversation. This is the contact. And when has any player been privy to that? When has any players association been a part of selling the deal? And that's, that's where I think that we've innovated. And when I talk to companies and they say, I've never spoken to a PA ever in working with all of the different major companies, I mean, major leagues that we work with. And I said, well, we do it differently. We are trying to provide the same thing that every other group is trying to provide, but we're taking a different approach. And I think it's partially because of the ability to, in its infancy, really put our stake in the, in the ground and say, hey, commissioner, this is what the PA needs. And we're mutually beneficial. If you need us and we need you and we all both need deals, let's do it together. And, you know, that's just things that mature leagues don't have. They don't mm -hmm. have that function to grow respective to one another. And, you know, I'll see a company and call Danny and be like, hey, have we gone after this person? And she's like, yeah, I tried with this person. Maybe you send an email and we'll work together in lockstep on these on these deals. And and that's what I think we want. That's what we want to build. And we're getting there every day. It's just a lack of communication and a lack of ability to come to common ground that's stopping the common goal from being achieved. And you've also had a change, too, with NWHL transparency. Because like you mentioned, the first few years, the, the deal to cut salaries, by having this revenue-sharing deal, I'm sure transparency has had to change from a player's yeah. perspective. Totally. Like our PA, our players on our PA – will have access. I'm still working on getting all of the facts and figures for all the different um, deals from varying sizes because as they get bigger or smaller, actually, it's harder to figure out what dollars are going to which. But every single person on the PA will be able to say, hey, your salaries raised from your negotiate from the already increased $150,000 salary cap, you're going to get a 26% bonus on whatever you made. That's where they're at right now. And we're not slowing down. And there's still the function for those PA members to know then this is the number that's coming in every deal. They're going to know what deliverables are going to get paid for out of the deals, you know, out of the monetary assets of the deal, where different changes are going to be made uh, to structure to pay the players more and different functions, like different partnerships that we can create that don't benefit the league at all, that maybe only benefit the players. Um, so there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that they now have visibility into that they didn't before, which was a huge red flag about the league. And, you know, when we were kind of in this place of, you know, what's happening in women's hockey, I'll say month three of the six month evolution, we scheduled a call with any person in any capacity that played professional sports, professional hockey, excuse me, and said, here's investors on our call, ask questions that will build your league confidence. And it wasn't utilized for that. It wasn't a meeting of the minds to try to figure out where XREV is going in the growth trajectories and what the biggest loss leader is, those weren't the questions. It was a very combative, very frustrated conversation where I felt like that platform wasn't being used by all of the players. So it was really mm -hmm. hard to say, you have a total capture of what we're doing on our business plan and that you refute it because you were on the phone with, with people that are CEOs of major conglomerates that are investors in our league and you didn't ask what the business plan was. So there was a lot of frustration. And then when we shook to this part, um, to now fast forward to six months, now I just think that we're too different to reconcile. And it's going to have to be a whole season of complete separation to figure mm -hmm. out where people are going to be. Yeah, they're going to have to finish out that year. Yeah. And that stinks. Because what a waste of a year. What a waste when the NWHL is getting more audience demographics and paying their players a 26% bonus at the end of the season at minimum that we're not paying that out to the best players in the world that are fighting to continue to grow, that have their own sponsors, that have their own people involved that can just continue to heighten this sport. Yeah. What are the other options for, there's a Swedish, Swedish league, yeah. right? You can go play in the SDHL in um, Sweden, you can go internationally. There's leagues, there's a league in Russia, there's a league in Australia, there's other places to play if you want to get up and leave and go. But how does the NWHL salary compare to those other leagues? Do you know off the top of your head? It's more, it's dramatically more. Those leagues never paid in the past. You didn't have living expenses because they would 
take care of that for you. Um, and you'd maybe have a reimbursement allowance, um, but it's not, it's not comparative. Okay. I want to, you mentioned Twitch earlier. What was the, and I know you're the players association rep and, and all that stuff, but as someone who's an advocate for the league, I want to ask you, what was the um, benefit of doing Twitch for the streaming? Um, I think one of the biggest benefits was that it was a new audience demographic, obviously getting in front of hockey, like, you know, the hockey audience is huge, but what Twitch gave us was the function to get in front of a whole new group of people that we maybe have never engaged with before and experience growing the sport to a different audience demographic. The more we can reach outside of ourselves, because people intrinsically that like hockey and that know about women's hockey will watch women's hockey. That's Mm -hmm. no question. A women's soccer fan is going to watch women's soccer. But, you know, a 18 to 34-year-old gamer maybe loves hockey but never thought women's hockey or never had the accessibility to it to just turn it on and get into a chat and start watching and being like, wow, this is actually a really good game. Um, so the, the whole marketing strategy has kind of shifted a little bit to getting a new audience demographic, obviously streaming games live so that anyone can see them anywhere is tremendous. But when you stream somewhere new, somewhere that maybe sports isn't widely known, you get anybody that's interested in growing that function, which is a a huge amount of people. So I'm excited about it. And, and obviously when it first came out, I was like, ugh. Who's really going to go on Twitch and do this? I mean, yesterday we had two games and we had over 4,000 viewers on each game. There's a lot of people that want to watch women's hockey and they don't know how to get to it. They don't know it exists. It's constantly educating. So to even fragment the small group of people that we do have watching women's hockey right now is hard because we're fighting for people. We're educating people. We're walking on the street and saying, do you know who Madison Packer is? No? Why? Because you don't even know there's a women's hockey league. It's not that you're choosing one person versus the next. You're saying, women's hockey? Oh, the Olympics? And you have to be like, ugh, no. There's so many more people playing the sport all across the world that you don't know about. And so yeah. It's, yeah. it's education. And that's what Twitch gave us was a whole new group to educate. And that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and I've only been on Twitch once. I was watching Brendan Yuri, sort of a fan of his. And... Um, <laughs> The interactive aspect of it, I guess, would continue on with the hockey games, right? Yes, that's the part that has been far beyond anything that the NWHL was, I'm going to say, ready for. You know, we now have these games that have chat features, and you can subscribe to the games, and you can talk to each other, and you can send bits, and you can, you know, you can seriously get so involved with this community and create fans and fandom is what we need to grow any women's sports. If you just have a, a casual person that's going to happen to go to a rink and happen to watch a game, that's great. That's maybe a quarter of the way there. But when you create fans that love these players, that want to be involved, that want to buy jerseys and jerseys and want to take trips to the rink and want to follow them on social media and talk about them, that's when you create fandom. And fandom creates revenue and revenue is what we need to grow the sport mm-hmm. yeah because we need to get butts in the seat for the games 100%. too a hundred percent i mean i've we've been talking for about an hour and i don't want to keep you too much longer but i do want to ask what do you consider will be a successful season this year for the nwhl yeah i think if we get to the point where we hit the 40 percent mark on salaries so deals coming in to increase that player payout to a 40 percent bonus Obviously, my, my stretch goal would be 56% because that hits some metrics in my mind that I'm really excited about. But 40% would be my goal. And that just starts with brands getting activated. And, and honestly, it starts with the viewership increasing. We've watched a steady increase of viewership game over game, and that's what I want to see continue. Um, obviously, the conversation of women's hockey has never been more hot button than it is right now. And success is, at the end of the day, us paying our players, potentially growing, you know, maybe adding another franchise, you know, having a successful all-star game in a brand new market. All of these things are, to me, different steps along the way. And on my whiteboard, my PA and I are working on our 2020, 2021 contract goals. So those will be 
presented to the league in January. That's the earliest we've ever done that. So there's a lot of infrastructure that we've built that I'm really excited to watch take place. And if they know our goals heading into January, how much more successful will we be in May when we start to solidify that contract? That'd be great to see with the the success. Um, do you guys ever think you'll do tournaments where, like I would think back to juniors where there were tournaments where all the teams participate in one location that's not one of the, the main sites where you already play? Um, I know professional, um, there's Premiership, Lacrosse right now that they don't have home cities. They just sort of tour around the country. Yep. But do you and think you'll, a- you would do something like that to increase interest? I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, I don't know. In my opinion, I, for example, I love the Connecticut Sun. I enjoy women's basketball. I enjoy college basketball. But I love the Connecticut Sun because I'm from Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So I feel really passionately about that. If you're asking me, Anya Packer's opinion, I'm going to say that I like the structure of having a home-based league. But that oh yeah, that I'm I'm saying home sense. base for sure. Still, I'm just saying you know random weekends, maybe even like a preseason no, yeah, yeah. tournament. I think that's dope. I think that'd be really fun because I think when you can comp- compound women's hockey with one another, like for example, say when the Buttes are in their outdoor game, maybe doing another activation with two other teams in the league. That's always fun because people can get a lot of women's hockey in a quick amount, and it's mm-hmm. very light on the investment. But I always think that you need that other structure to build the fan bases. So I hope so. I hope that that's eventually how we, we test markets. Currently we do it with um, all-star games and um, different outreaches, but uh, I think a, a little round Robin in a new market might be a really fun way. We, we did it for, I think the, the season opener for season two in key bank center when we were there in Buffalo. And it was awesome just to have all the teams in one place, like mm-hmm. from the, um, top down, we could meet everybody. We could talk to leadership. We could, that was when Harrison Brown came out and we were able to learn about our trans policy and, and host those discussions live. So I think a symposium type meeting during a, a round Robin would be a great thing on the yeah, infrastructure side too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's definitely not a no. I, I, I think the more women talking, we can expose people to the better. Two questions and then I'll let you go. The, the next one is, one of the things I'd noticed with the WNBA uh, finals playoffs, there seemed to be a synergy growing between the WNBA and the NWHL. Was that just because of the two Connecticut teams? Or do you think you see that as a, an aspect to get women's sports to sort of work together? I think it's an interesting way to work together. I think that because our seasons are opposite one another, like they just wrapped up and we're just ramping up. I always think mm-hmm. that it's a it's a solid way to build um, cross-lateral demographics and people that support women's soccer, women's basketball, women's hockey. They all have a lot in common with one another. They all have very similar excitements, similar wants and similar desires from the like humanity of their clubs and like the morality and different things that are bigger than just the sport. So connecting and firing with different women's leagues is hugely important. I know our Riveters team in, in the metropolitan area are always doing activations with Sky Blue, which is the NWSL club there. And Connecticut Mm -hmm. was 100% behind their Connecticut sun. So the more we can spark those connections, the better we are. As a women's organization, firing with other people that support other women's organizations and sports in particular, we're stronger. So um, I was really excited about the utilization. I obviously got to sit courtside with my wife. So (laughs) added bonus, like that was dope. But I think that that's I think that those people are the people that we need to be activating on. And and when we were live, the Connecticut Sun team did so much to make us feel appreciated. They put us on the Jumbotron. They interviewed us. There was so much there that made us feel like pro athletes, which is just the appreciation factor. So it was tremendous. Awesome. Uh, My final question is this. I ask all the guests, if you can go back in time, tell your 12 year old self or 13 year old self something to help you with your own sexuality come to terms with it, uh, to find acceptance in you, what would that one thing be? I think I would tell myself that just because I was gay doesn't mean I'm not deserving of good love, being treated properly, being treated with respect, being treated like somebody that I wanted to be treated like. And for a long time, I struggled in my sexuality and being with people that weren't good to me and in my mind I rationalized it because that's what happens 
in the gay community and I don't know why, but it was wrong. And I think that when I was a kid, I just wanted to be loved and I, I accepted bad, crappy love because I just wanted to feel connected to somebody. And I think we all struggle with that, gay, straight or indifferent. In and, and that's something I would, I would really hammer home. I, you deserve love and you deserve the right love. And when it comes, it's going to feel like nothing you've ever known before. Cool. Perfect answer. Anya, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for checking out my podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anya. Thank you, Anya, for also being a part of it. I had a lot of fun talking with you and learned a lot about the NWHL. Hope you all have a great weekend. I will see you again next Tuesday.